Good morning, fellowship. Really good to be with you all this morning. Uh, If you're new, my name is Rob, and I'm one of two teachers, primary teachers that we have here along with Lloyd. We've got two campuses, this campus, and we have one at Franklin, and we we do the same series. And so while I'm here, Lloyd's there, and we switch back and forth every other week. And it's really good to be with you. I want to share with you, first of all, an opportunity we have to um, come alongside and pray for and care for one of the families in our body. Many of you know the Stroop family. Um, Zach and Paige, and they have two sons, Landon and Connor. Uh, The Stroop family has been a part of our body for a long time, and Paige is on our staff. She is our leader of adult ministries. If you've seen Paige around the last few months, you've seen that she's expecting. Uh, They received a very difficult diagnosis in November where they learned that their child had anencephaly, which means that the, uh, the brain and the skull of their baby was not going to develop fully, and uh, the child would only have a very short time to live once she was born. And so for the last number of months, uh, Paige and Zach have been processing that and been walking together as a family in uh, both the joy of a pregnancy and the tragedy of knowing what, what lay ahead for them as a family. Uh, Paige gave birth this last week on, on Monday evening, and they were able to have about two hours with Lily before Lily passed away. And we have an opportunity and a privilege to care for them, to lift them up, uh, to grieve with them in a deep season of loss and mourning, and also to celebrate the hope that they have um, of knowing that they're going to be spending eternity with Lily. And I want to share with you what they wrote on their Caring Bridge site this week. Thank you, family and friends, for all your support as we've welcomed and said goodbye to Lily this week. She was so precious from the moment we got to meet her at 11.41 p.m. on January 25th. We felt her heartbeat, had a birthday party, took lots of pictures, and then she went to be with Jesus at 2.07 a.m. January 26th. We spent the next 17 hours holding, treasuring her, taking every footprint, handprint, and picture we could before saying goodbye. We so wish all of you could have met her, but we look forward to sharing the impact of sweet daughter Lily with all of you. We will have a memorial service of hope honoring Lily's life on Saturday, February 6th at 10 a.m. at Fellowship Bible Church Brentwood Campus. And if you're able to be there, I know it would mean a lot to the Stroops. Um, They're here at our campus. Their home is Fellowship Franklin, but we wanted some more space for the people that may come on Saturday. So we will be at Brentwood Campus on Saturday. I know they would would be encouraged if you're able to be there with them. Those of you that have known this information for a while now would probably agree with me when I say I I don't know that I remember a time to see a family walk in tragedy with more grace and hope. Uh, It's it's been astounding. And I've just been uh, honored uh, that this family is here in our family of faith a fellowship. And now we have the privilege of coming alongside them and praying for them and mourning with them and grieving with them and doing what families do, which is just to be there for each other in the midst of loss. And I want to encourage you to be a part of that. Uh, The first most important thing to do is to pray. Prayer matters. Prayer works. They need our prayers. Uh, Secondly, if you can make it to the service, I know that would encourage them 10 a.m. on Saturday. And thirdly, if you want to know more more information about how you might be able to come alongside and support, I would encourage you to go to the Caring Bridge website and just look up their names, Zach and Paige Stroop on Caring Bridge. 
The thought that I had this morning as I was thinking about this was I thought, how, how wonderful that the, the only slice of this broken earth that that little girl will ever know is in the arms of her family celebrating her birthday. It's a beautiful image to me. And uh, there is much more celebrating yet to come on the new earth with Lily and the Stroop family. Let's pray for them. Let's lift them up. Father, we thank you for a chance to be a family of faith to the Stroops. Thank you for the way they have walked in this as an example to all of us. Thank you for giving life to this family, so short-lived, but only from our perspective. So, Father, we rest in the hope and the joy of what will be. We grieve and mourn over what, from our perspective, might have been for this family And yet, Father, our trust is in you. So we pray for deep comfort and deep peace for Zach, for Paige, for Landon and Connor, for their parents, their brother, their sisters, their their whole family, God. Would you allow them to rest in the knowledge that you are in control and your love is strong? And I pray for our body that we would walk with the Stroop family well in the months and years ahead as they continue to grieve and move forward in the hope and grace that you have given them. And we ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you now to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. If you've been with us um, since the fall or at any part you've jumped in, you know that we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, verse by verse, and we're in a section here on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is taking three common religious practices of his day, maybe the big three religious practices of his day, and he's talking about there's a way that you can engage these religious practices that's only external and surface and has very little reward, and there's a way that you can engage religious practices that has meaning and depth and greater reward. The three religious practices are giving money, praying, and fasting. And for the last few weeks, we've been talking about giving money in prayer. Today, we're going to talk about fasting. Before I move to fasting, though, I just want to say um, I've been joining you all, many of you, this last week in setting our alarms at 3 p.m. and being reminded every day to pray the Lord's Prayer. Lloyd encouraged you to do that last week. Um, one of those occasions, uh, we were interrupted. Our, we were having an elder team all-day planning meeting, and it got to be 3 o'clock. And, of course, you know, you don't think about it until it comes. And so it was an explosion of alarms because everybody's alarm is synchronized on your phone, right? So it was just boom, 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 all over the room. And so I called on a volunteer elder to lead us in the Lord's Prayer. And a guy raised his hand. I won't tell you who it is for reasons that will become obvious in a moment. And uh, he didn't open a Bible or anything. So I was like, okay, he's got this. You know, he must, he's got it memorized. This, you know, a lot of people with religious backgrounds kind of know this prayer. And so we bowed our heads and uh, this particular elder, I almost said his name, this particular elder started leading us through the prayer and he got to the forgiveness part. You know, forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses either way. And he just left it out. Like he skipped right over that, you know, and went right to the, the, the next part of it. You know, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. And like most of the elders were so confused because it was like, wait a minute, I know there's supposed to be something about debts or trespasses there. And we all just kind of just got all discombobulated and it kind of just ended in this very anticlimactic rumbling. And then we all burst out into laughter because this elder felt so embarrassed. I looked at him and said, you're an elder of this church. <laughs> And then I told him I was going to tell this story 
on Sunday, but I promised I would not use his name. I'll just say, y'all, I'll know him. Enough said. Okay, let us talk about fasting. Um, well, I'm going to read to you Matthew 6, 16 to 18. That's our text this morning, just three verses. You can um, read along, follow along quietly, silently as I read. It'll be on the screen and, and in your Bible as well. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Uh, this particular section um, follows a very tight structure, a parallel structure. E each topic, so giving, prayer, and fasting follows the exact same structure. I want to diagram it for you so you can kind of see it. It starts off with a general statement, and when you fast, so introducing the topic, then it goes on to what you are not to do. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. And then the, the third part is always the reward section. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. And then there's a contrast that follows the exact same pattern. You'll see it, red, blue, gold. So the introduction, but when you fast, is almost the exact same words up here, but the important contrasting word, but. Instead of, you know, don't look gloomy, instead, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you may not be seen by others, but by your father who sees in secret and then a similar reward section. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. So, you know, Jesus has a lot of logic to his teaching. He is um, very simply saying there is a way to fast that has very little reward because it's motivated from the wrong place of the heart. And there's a way to fast that has great reward because it comes from a different motivation. Let's talk about cultural context of fasting. Everything that these folks knew in the first century about fasting, the Jews of the first century, came, of course, from the Old Testament. That's all they had. That was their scriptures at that point in time. And so what do we know about fasting from the Old Testament? There were two kinds of fasts, a public and a private fast. The public fast was done. The whole nation would fast together certain times of the year or certain occasions. The most prominent public fast was on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was when the sins of all the people were laid upon the animal, and that animal was sacrificed to atone for the sins of the nation. And it was a very somber day, a very solemn day, at least the initial part of it, and then it ended in a celebration. So they would fast all throughout the day, and then they would feast. They would eat, and they would celebrate the forgiveness of their sins. There were many other public fasts. Oftentimes, they would be when, when there was a natural disaster, maybe a famine in the land or an epidemic, interestingly enough, or maybe war was impending. The, the king or the prophets or the leaders would call the nation to a fast. It was a public fast. Like everybody in were fasting together. There were these public fasts required in the law. There was another kind of fast that was not required in the law, private fast. And although it was never required in the law, private fasts, there are many good examples of men and women doing private fasts in ways that, that really honored God. And these were exactly what they sound like, personal, private. You weren't to make a show of it. You weren't to make a big deal. But there were reasons that you might, from your own initiative, seek after God in this particular way through fasting. Now, the problem is, by the time of Jesus, the religious experts had made the private fast. They'd kind of elevated it to this marker of true spirituality. 
So it's like, oh yeah, there's all the casual Jews. They only fast during the, uh, the national fast days, the public fasts, right? Then there are those of us that are the real Jews, the spiritual Jews, the deeply committed, and we do private fasts twice a week. That was the custom at the time of Jesus was Mondays and Thursdays. Those that were the most devout would fast twice a week. Now, because they made the fast into a marker of spiritual devotion, they also had to make it something that could be seen. Because what good does it do you if it can't be seen, right? This is their logic in their mind. So they wanted people to know they were devout. So what they would do is they wouldn't shower, you know, our equivalent. <laughs> they, they wouldn't bathe on those days. They wouldn't comb their hair and their, straighten their beard. You know, they wouldn't anoint their head with oil, which is just the common thing that you would do to look presentable. So the equivalent for us of maybe shaving or putting on makeup or just, you know, washing yourself. They wouldn't do those things. So that when people would see them, they'd be like, what's wrong with that guy? Is he sick? Oh, it's the fasting day. He's very spiritual. He must be on God's good side. He's willing to suffer and sacrifice himself for the sake of God and for the sake of his faith, you see. So they made it a spiritual marker of maturity. That led to the temptation to elevate it to something that can be seen by others so that everybody will know that they're spiritual. And Jesus says, you can do it that way and you've received your reward in full. If you want people to think you're spiritual, you can get exactly what you want. And that's the reward. People think you're spiritual. Now, Jesus gives an alternative in verse 17. He says, when you, when you fast, and this is to his followers, and he's gonna say, don't, don't be like that. In fact, what I want you to do, Jesus is saying, <clears throat> I want you to anoint your head. Make it look like a, a good day, a, a day of health, a day of celebration. I want you to wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others so that they look at you and they don't think, what are you suffering for? Oh, you're suffering for God. No, they just look at you and say, oh, glad you're doing well. Your father who is in secret will reward you. Jesus is implying there are reasons to fast. He says, when you fast, we'll talk about those reasons in a little bit. But he's saying, when you fast, it's between you and God. It's not between anybody else. You don't need to make a big deal of it. You're not fasting for the sake of other people. So don't mix your motivation. Don't tempt yourself to make it about looking spiritual. That's what Jesus is saying. So once again, just like he has with giving and prayer, and now fasting, he's going to the heart of the matter, the internal motivation that fuels the external behavior. Why do you do religious things? That's the question you keep getting confronted with in this section. Why do you give, those of you who give? Why do you pray? Why do you go to church? Why do you go to small group? Why do you listen to Christian music? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you do any religious thing? Why do you do it? This is the point of the passage. Jesus is saying, look in your motivation and you'll learn a lot about yourself. By the way, I, I can only imagine how this sounded to the disciples, to, to, they, their, their literal assumptions about who was righteous and who was spiritual was getting inverted. They all thought the most righteous and spiritual people were these Pharisees. They just assumed the guys that pray and give and fast are the ones on God's good side. Jesus is saying the people you think are the most righteous very well may not be. And the ones who actually are closest to God are likely the ones that you overlook. 
ones that go unnoticed. Remember, he had just said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the question I want to get into today. Should we fast? What part might fasting play in our Christian faith? Should fasting be a significant part of how we pursue God and how we practice our faith as Christians, um, particularly as Protestants, I think most of us don't quite know what to do with fasting. You know, giving, okay, yes. Prayer, yes. And, you know, other religious practices, yes. But fasting, and should I feel guilty that I don't fast? Should I start fasting? If so, how often? What do I do with this text? Let's talk about this. There's a lot we could say about this. Fasting has been misunderstood and mispracticed throughout church history. But I think the simplest way to think about it this morning is to go back to our core identity, which is followers of Jesus. Don't get confused in our cultural moment. What it means to be a Christian is to be a believer in and follower of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. You call yourself a Christian, what you're saying, I'm a believer in and follower of Jesus Christ. So the question then becomes, well, if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, did Jesus fast? And did he expect his followers to fast? And if those questions are yes, there's something there for us. So let's talk about those two questions. The first, did Jesus fast? Well, yes, of course. Yes, of course he did. Um, in fact, um, we, we see him participating in both public fasts and private fasts. The most prominent one that probably comes to most of our minds is when he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness right before his temptation. And this was just before he began his ministry. In fact, Matthew chapter four is where we see this account. And remember, the Sermon on the Mount starts Matthew chapter five. I mean, it was literally right before his ministry begins. And I've always thought Matthew four verse two is the most understated verse of the whole Bible. It says, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Thank you. It's like, yes, I'm sure he was hungry. Now, the second question deserves a little more attention. So the first question, did Jesus fast? Yes, absolutely. The second question, did he expect his followers to fast? This is a fascinating one because of Matthew chapter 9. Let's look there. Turn over in your Bible. I'll put it on the screen as well. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 15. We get a direct answer to this question. Did Jesus expect his followers to fast? It says this, Matthew 9, 14. Then the disciples of John... So John had his own disciples, John the Baptist, came to him, Jesus, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. This is fascinating. First of all, it stood out to the other religious people even the disciples of John the Baptist, that the disciples of Jesus were not fasting. They were standing out, not because of their fasting, their frequent fast, but their lack of fasting. They just were not fasting. And they kind of got called out for it. It's interesting. That got the attention of those around them. But Jesus' answer is even more fascinating. We'll talk about this later in the sermon. I'll come back to this near the end. But what Jesus is saying here is saying, there will be a time for fasting, but that time is not now. As long as I am physically present with them, they will not fast. But there will be a day that they will. 
because I will no longer be physically with them and then they will fast. And sure enough, in the book of Acts, once Jesus has ascended into heaven, we see the disciples fasting on multiple occasions. So it's very clear, fasting has a place in our Christian faith. It has a place in our Christian practice. My guess is it, my guess is very few of you practice it. And I myself am in the category. I do fast, but it's not a regular frequent part of, of my spiritual disciplines. It's infrequent and it's rare. And, and, you know, as I've studied this, I don't feel guilty for that. But what I have felt is an invitation to something. And I want to share that with you. And I want to give you this morning an invitation. It, but, you know, it did cross my mind that maybe like all of you are fasting regularly, but you're just doing it the right way. So I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, my guess is you're probably not fasting or you may not be fasting much. Um, I want to give you three wrong reasons to fast and then four biblical reasons to fast. And that's how we're going to apply this message. Let me start with the negative. Uh, wrong reasons to fast, to impress other people, to get things from God, to check a religious box. Now, before I just briefly touch on these, let me say this. I don't think our, our, our temptation to fast for the wrong reasons is as great today. Another way to say it is uh, because most of us aren't fasting, the good news is we're not fasting for the wrong reasons. Or if I said that right, but I think you follow what I'm trying to say. Now, um, I do think that these three reasons can apply wrong reasons to do any good religious thing. These are wrong reasons to go to church, wrong reasons to read your Bible, wrong reasons to pray, wrong reasons to do anything, wrong reasons for your devotion to God. And I want to talk about these. So number one, you're not to fast or do any religious thing to impress other people. If you learn anything from these three or four weeks in this section, I hope that you get a gut check on the motivation of your heart. I shared with you just my own journey two weeks ago about how some of my own preaching is motivated to impress other people. And God's convicted me of that. And guys, let me just say, our motives are always a mixed bag. Their motives are squishy, slippery things. That's why we pray for help. That's why we pray for grace. And that's why we confess. But we are not to fast or do any other religious thing to impress other people. Number two, we are not to fast or do any other religious thing to get things from God. You might be thinking, well, hold on, Rob. Doesn't it say there's God will reward you? Isn't that getting things from God? Let me explain what I mean by this. Most people think when they get really spiritual and read their Bibles and do religious things and go to church and join small group and maybe even fast, that they are putting God in their debt a little bit. Now, you don't consciously think that or, or say that, but haven't you had that experience where like your life's going along and like something bad will happen to you and you'll just be like, oh, I better, get, I better turn back to God and get really spiritual and so my life turns around again. Do you see what you're saying? It's like, if I get serious with God, he's gonna reward me by making my life go well. Guys, some of the most spiritually mature people I know have lives that are very, very difficult. And on the flip side, I know of some very spiritually immature people who have life easy, at least seemingly. So it doesn't work that way. Um, second of all, while I'm talking about this idea of sort of to get things from God, you have to know, and I, we cannot hammer this in, into our minds enough, you cannot make God love you anymore just as you cannot make him love you any less. 
So I grew up, and in, in my story is um, I accepted Christ really young. I, I, I was raised in a really strong Christian home, and I knew all the right things I were to do. And I wasn't a firstborn, but I was the oldest of the two sons. And so I acted like a firstborn. So I was very like, whatever I'm supposed to do to make sure I get good grades and do religious things, and I'm going to do it. And so I went through high school and college, honestly, believing that when I was having my time with God consistently, God was proud of me and, and more pleased with me than when I wasn't. And when I wasn't, when I fell off the wagon or whatever it was, I, I just had this sense, God is just frustrated with me. He's gotta be so disappointed in me. It's taken me a couple of decades to slowly unwind that narrative. And let me say this, guys, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says you are in Christ. All the approval the Father has for the Son, all the love the Father has for the Son, all, all the, the pride the Father has for the Son who obeyed Him perfectly, that is just bestowed upon you, whether you lifted a finger or not for it, is just by faith alone. And so you need to bask in that. You need to walk in that. You cannot outrun God's love. You cannot earn God's love. It is just there. It is on you. And so don't pray or read your Bible or go to church or fast in order to get God's love. It is already yours. And don't ever feel like you've gotten yourself beyond it. Now, this third reason to check a religious box, this is maybe something that we are in danger of in our day. The only reason that I think we're not fasting for the wrong reasons is because no one around us is really fasting. If fasting in our culture in Middle Tennessee became a marker of spiritual maturity, my guess is a lot of us would be doing it for the wrong reasons. Just as maybe a lot of us are in church for the wrong reasons or small group for the wrong reasons. Again, our motivations are mixed bag, guys. It's just an opportunity for a gut check. We don't fast or do any religious thing to check some kind of box. What are the right reasons? I want to spend a little more time here. What are good reasons to fast? There are many more than four in the Bible, uh, but I want to give you four that I find uh, prominently as I've studied it. Number one, to imitate Jesus. I probably could stop there and say, remember, we're followers of Jesus. Jesus fasted. He expected his followers to fast. Let's fast. That would be enough motivation for a follower of Jesus, some, some, you know, any of us who've committed our lives to patterning ourselves after our master. But the problem with leaving it there is that doesn't get to the heart of fasting. In other words, it doesn't get to why Jesus might want us to follow him in fasting. So let's get to the other reasons. Reason number two, to respond to the brokenness in us and around us. In, in its clearest biblical context, fasting is a response to the brokenness of creation that is inside us and that is around us. The Day of Atonement, guys, was a response to the brokenness internally, the sin of the people. They fasted in humility in response to an awareness of their sin. It was a sober day to think that some 
creature has to die because of my sin. When you are deeply confronted by your own sin, fasting is a biblical response. Now, you don't fast to try to atone for your sin. It wasn't the fast on the day of atonement that atoned for the sin. It was the sacrifice. Same with us today as Christians. It's not your fasting that will make up for your sin or your guilty conscience. It is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ once for all. The fasting is a response to the brokenness in you. Fasting exposes your need. In this case, your need for forgiveness. And so you fast, you feel your need. You feel it physically. Fasting aligns your physical body with your spiritual reality. Desperate need for God's intervention to restore you to life. Biblically, fasting is not just a response to internal brokenness, but response to external brokenness. It was the primary way Israel responded to famine, an epidemic, and war and tragedies around them. If someone in your family died, or, or if the king died, the whole nation would fast. Someone in your family or a loved one died, it would often be accompanied by a fast. Why? Again, you're putting your body where your heart is. You're integrating your body with your heart. You see, we're meant to be whole people. So the Israelites responded to these tragedies around them by entering into the grief of a groaning creation. The creation's broken, guys. Creation's mourning. It is right for us to feel the brokenness, the hunger, the thirst, the longing, the desire to be filled. It is right for us to experientially engage that and not just have an intellectual consciousness of it. So, so this blew my mind when I thought about Matthew chapter nine, Jesus saying, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Did you see what he's saying? He's saying, in me, there is no fasting, only feasting. In Jesus, guys, as long as Jesus is physically present with his disciples, how could they fast? There is no brokenness. He was healing storms. He was feeding hungry people. He was casting out demons. He was healing disease. It's like everywhere Jesus walked, he just blazed this trail of wholeness, no lack, no sin, no, no anything surrounding Jesus. So as long as they're in his orbit, as long as they're in his presence, there's only wholeness. There's no brokenness to enter into. But right now, he's not with us physically. Now you may be thinking, but we have the spirit of Christ in us. Yes, absolutely good Bible student. The spirit is described as a down payment of what is to come. We have a part, but not the whole. We still live in brokenness. So Jesus says, when the bridegroom's not with them, then they will fast. And we are called to fast, to respond to the brokenness in us, around us, as we await the return of Jesus to restore wholeness to us and the creation. Full wholeness. Reason number three. To put ourselves in a posture of dependence to seek wisdom, guidance, and protection. This is very common all throughout scripture. You see men and women that would fast before they made an important decision or before they went on an adventure or went to battle. And what, what are they doing in this time? Now, 
at first it may seem like, oh, I see. I pay God by fasting and he pays me back with success. Oh no, oh no, don't remember. You cannot manipulate God. So why would we fast before a big decision or a, or a change in our life or when we're contemplating something or when we're about to start a job or whatever? To put yourself in a posture of dependence. In other words, don't you want to be entering into that decision or that new adventure completely dependent upon God? Again, you're aligning your body with where you want your heart, you see. Think of it this way. Fasting puts your body in the condition, fully dependent on God, that you need your whole self to be in before you make this important decision, before you go on this journey or whatever it is that you're doing. Remember, Jesus actually said, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is righteousness? It's right standing with God. It's, it's, it's walking with him. It, it's, it's being integrated in God's will for you. You should hunger and thirst for that. You should let your body echo your heart's desire by fasting. Reason number three, one more. This one's big. I mean, all these are big, right? To expose our true hunger and thirst and direct, direct them toward God. Let me take you to the story in uh, Matthew 4 of Jesus in the wilderness. You know, he's very hungry, 40 days, 40 nights. Satan comes to him. The first temptation, Satan says, turn the stones into bread. Uh, Satan knows that Jesus has to have food in order to live. Like he, he will he's on a trajectory of death. Denying yourself of food is a trajectory of death. And so the temptation Jesus had was to use his own power outside of God's will for him, to use his own power to provide for himself. In other words, the temptation of Jesus was to be self-sufficient. Jesus responded to the temptation by quoting Deuteronomy. I want you to listen to these words. Man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The point of fasting is to come to know and believe that sentence. Another way to think about this, fasting is practice in learning how to depend on God and not your own self-sufficiency. God created you to need food, but he created you for much deeper need. So all the time we go about life, and, you know, we feel two kinds of hunger, physical hunger and spiritual hunger. You know what the physical hunger feels like. It's the growling in your stomach. You know how to meet that need. Just grab a snack. Just prepare some food. Just eat. But you also have a deeper hunger. You've got spiritual hunger, so hunger for meaning, hunger for peace, cure for your loneliness, hunger for significance. Maybe, maybe some of us hunger for influence or power. And we've got all these spiritual hungers. And it is just as easy for us to reach for a snack, for us to just grab something off the shelf to sort of temporarily satiate the spiritual hunger. We do it all the time without even thinking about it. 
We have trained ourselves to be so self-sufficient. And it feels just as natural to, to grab some um, temporary cure for my sense of loneliness or my sense of abandonment and just kind of feed myself with that as it is to grab the snack from the cupboard. Denying yourself of food often reveals what you're really hungry for. It reveals the spiritual hunger inside of you. I get angry when I fast. And it's more than just the hangry thing. And I know there's some medical, physiological things, you know, when you get hungry and that kind of thing. But I started thinking about why do I get so angry when I fast? And here, guys, here's what I realized. I don't like not being able to meet my needs. I don't like not being in control. I don't like not being able to satiate myself. I don't like being hungry. I don't like it. Our particular brand of Christianity has become so self-sufficient. Part of it's just the culture we live in. Think about how, think about all the degrees of separation we have with our food from actually having to really beg God to provide food for us. We're not fishing to eat, you know, unless it's just for sport. We're not planting things and praying for rain or we will die. We go to the grocery store. And if you don't want to cook, you can get pre-prepared meal. Heck, if you don't even want to go out, you just click a few buttons on your app and it shows up at your door. Now, I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with that, but see, we're so separated from our deep need for God. We feel so self-sufficient. I think this is a lot of reasons why we don't fast. It seems silly to us that we would not satisfy our own needs. So how do you learn to take your truest needs to God rather than snacking on things that don't fully satisfy? You practice by fasting. Now, in a minute, I want to, I want to tell you what we're going to do. But, but first, let's talk about the how of fasting, okay? Uh, if you've never fasted before or only rarely, please don't try to do a 40-day fast or anything like it. <laughs> if you've never fasted before, you've only rarely fasted, start with a meal or two. And by the way, even then, you know, some of you have medical conditions where it may not be wise for you. Just talk to your doctor if you've got anything at all that you think would, you need to talk to about. But, but I, I'd say this, the great thing about fasting is it's not about how long you do it, it's about the posture it puts your heart in. And for a culture that's so used to meeting our own needs, it does not take a lot of discomfort to start stirring something in you. So just pick a meal or two and do it ahead of time. You know, don't just say, oh, I'm, fat. I'm just giving lunch today. You know, you know I'm going to apply Rob's sermon right now. You know, give yourself some time to think about it, to prepare mentally, physically, emotionally. And we'll talk about how we're going to fast together if you, want, if you choose to in, in a few minutes. But, but here's the thing. Use the time, it's just easy two steps to fast. You know, choose a meal or two ahead of time. Use the time you'd normally be eating to pray. That's step one. And I don't mean like for a whole hour. Okay, you can just pray 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It doesn't take long to eat usually. So if you're not used to praying an hour, just pray 10 or 15 minutes. And then step two, during your fast, whenever you feel that hunger pain, let it be a physical reminder of your spiritual hunger. And here's how you can let it be. Just a very simple prayer. 
Lord, I need you more than I need food. Thank you for meeting my need. Amen. That's the prayer. Not some magic formula, but that's the posture. That's, that's, that's the prayer that I would encourage you to use. Lord, I, you feel hunger. Lord, I need you more than I need food. Thank you for meeting my need. Amen. And you keep going. Five minutes later, it comes back. Lord, I need you more than I need food. Thank you for meeting my need. Amen. Amen. And I'll tell you, there's something that happens in you. And yeah, I get angry and stuff like that. But boy, throughout that day, and then when you sit down to eat your next meal, there's just something that just wants to explode inside of you of gratitude and joy. And just this sense of God has provided. God has sustained me. Now, I want to encourage you to, to join us on this. Ooh, somehow I got this. This has messed it up. Okay, here we go. Set aside this Friday, February 5th, as a day of fasting and prayer for our country, our community, our church, our own hearts. We're, we're going to do this together. You know, Anybody who wants to be with us on this, I encourage you to. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to choose one or two meals to skip. So either breakfast, lunch, or both. And set your alarm. This is one of those like pull out your phone. You can do it now or do it later. But pull out your phone and set it for 12 noon on that day. And that's when we're all going to pray together. And I encourage you to pray throughout the day, but, but this is going to be a unified time of prayer for us. We're going to send you a prayer guide, a prayer and fasting guide. We're going to email it to you this week. If you don't get our emails, um, go to the website. You can sign up for our emails there or email me, and I'll make sure you get on our email list. Set your alarm for 12 p.m. that day. Listen, some of you can't fast that day because you've got something going on, or maybe physically you can't fast at all. That's fine. Join us in prayer anyway. If you can fast, but you can't fast that day, choose a different day to fast. Experience the joy of this. This is an invitation from Jesus. And it's an opportunity for us to follow him in a way that, that many of us don't know much about. Let me pray for us and then we'll worship together. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you that it's alive and well. I pray that we would live it. In Jesus' name, amen.